He's taller than I am. My name is Gracie Aronofsky. Hi, everybody. Hi. Can everybody hear? Yeah. We had a little problem last night, and I don't know what I'm going to say, but I sure as heck don't want you to miss it. <laughs> Truly, by the grace of God, I am a member of the Al-Anon family groups. My home group is the Preston Group in Dallas, Texas. When David and, arrived, David and I arrived yesterday, and J.D. and D. were standing there, it was just like coming home. And this is what's so fantastic about our program. No matter where we go, our paths ultimately cross again and again and again, and at the least expected times. And we do pick up right where we left off. I know there's some of you in here that have heard my story. Don't expect any changes because I'm still living with the same drunk. <laughs> Maybe there's a little bit of growth, I hope. Uh, you don't hang around this fellowship without growing some because they told me a long time ago you had to grow or you had to go. And I don't have any place else to go today except right here. I'd like to thank the committee for including us in your fall conference. This is really my first time in Wyoming and I love it. I, I just love the feeling of being close to home and I'll tell you about that in a minute. And I love the warm feeling in this room. It isn't always this way. You don't always just get the vibes and, and here they are. And, and I feel like no matter what I do up here, it's okay. You'll accept me just as I am. And I thank you for that. I thank you again for having us this weekend. Uh, before I get started, how many drunks do we have in the room? How about that? You outnumber us. You should. But... I just want you to know if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be here. Wouldn't need to be here. I'd be out hunting some other kind of a sickle. Because that's part of my shortcoming and or defect, if you will. Part of my sickness. I've had a grand time. The workshops this morning were wonderful. I missed a good portion of the first part of the first one but I loved every bit of it. And again, I felt like I was home, and this is what's so great about our fellowship. Whether we be AA, Al-Anon, or Alateen, no matter where we go, the program's the same, so long as we don't dilute and divert, and we stay within the confines of, and thank God most of us do. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now, and basically that's all I have to talk about. I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. I told you not very far from home, up here. And I grew up in a very loving family. Mother and dad, older brother, younger brother. And everything was good. I don't remember anything bad growing up. We were not wealthy. We were what probably would be called upper middle class. I don't know. I, class distinction doesn't mean a darn thing to me. Never did. But... Uh, we certainly had every single thing we needed. We kids did not get everything we wanted because my father didn't believe in this. And yet, after coming to you people many years later, I realized that I was treated in a very special way. I was very spoiled. And uh, I didn't know that. And I came to expect this as an adult. And I had to do a searching inventory, an in-depth inventory, to find out about myself and to find out that I wasn't special, that I wasn't any better than I wasn't or any worse than, but I was just as good as anybody that came down the pike. I didn't know that. 
because my family, I had 16 aunts and uncles, and that's a lot of kinfolk. And we had lots, and I had lots of cousins because they were very, very prolific people. And uh, everybody put me kind of up here, and that's where I thought I belonged. And I don't think I belong there anymore, thanks to you. I graduated high school at age 16. I went on to the University of Colorado not to get an education. That was not in my mind at all. I went up to have a good time, have fun, meet fellas, fall in love, get married, and have six kids. That's what was in my plan. Because you see, back in junior high school, I discovered boys. And I discovered way back then that I like boys better than I do girls. <laughs> and I am 62 and I still feel the same way. <laughs> and I started fantasizing and I fantasized for a lot of years and I don't think there's anything wrong with fantasy because you've taught me the difference between fantasy and reality today. And I still fantasize. My fantasies are a lot different today. I fantasize about, like, being in Casper this weekend and what it would be like to live in Casper. If we could just pick up and move up here or pick up and move to Montana or pick up and move back to Colorado, what would it be like? And then the reality sets in and I realize I'm married to a dyed-in-the-wool Texan. We aren't going to move anywhere. But I still think fantasy is fun. But back then my fantasies went something like this. When I grow up, I'm going to get married. And he's going to be six foot four, and he's going to be an all-American football player. And we're going to go through life doing all the things that Gracie wants to do. It was always what Gracie wanted. And then I got to you people, and I found out about selfishness, self-centeredness, self-will. Oh, my. I didn't like to hear those things. I didn't like to learn about those. Today, I'm very grateful for having learned them. Didn't realize that it took two to tango. Didn't realize that marriage involved two people, not just one. Didn't realize a lot of things. I also want to clarify right now, in my fantasy, there was no alcoholic. There was absolutely nothing about drunkenness in my fantasy. I didn't know about alcohol. I didn't know about drunkenness. I have to clarify that. I knew about drinking because we had alcohol in our home, though my parents didn't drink. It was for their friends. It was for us when we got old enough to drink socially. But it was not ever to be overindulged in. So drinking was not a no-no in our home. I learned about it in high school because we had three, two beer back in Denver then, still do, I'm sure. And it was not illegal for us to take it up on cookouts. And, and the kids did, and we did, and we'd buy it by the case. And I know today, there's a great line in our living with an alcoholic, what my role was then, what it is today, because we don't change everything. And in Living with an Alcoholic, it has a new title today. I don't know why we change titles on some of our literature, but we do. I don't even know the name of the new title, but that's not important. It was our first hardback book. And in it, it says, we take on the role of parents of wayward children. And you know, that fits every one of us in Al-Anon. It fits every drunk and it fits every Alateen. If you ever watch a drunk pick up a brand new wet one and say, he's mine, yeah. you know, and they go out and get drunk, and oh my God, you know, it's just 
the bottom of the world has fallen out. And we in Al-Anon get a new pigeon, we get a new baby, a new sponsee, whatever you call them. And we're so excited and we're so busy healing, we're going to make them well. And then they move on to somebody else. What have I done wrong? It's not that. That's misplaced ego. It's just that they found somebody else that they can more strongly identify with. But back as a kid, I found myself taking care of everybody who had a little bit too much to drink. There I was. Because I didn't like it. I didn't like the taste of it. I didn't like the smell of it. I didn't like what it did to me. Although, several years later, I was learned to, to learn to drink. And I drank a whole lot. I was to learn to drink with the alcoholic, drink without him, to drink alone, and to drink with other people. And I know today that it is only by the grace of God that I am not an alcoholic. I am firmly convinced, let me stop right now and say this, that I do not ever speak for Al-Anon as a whole. I am so glad we don't have authorities. I am so glad we don't have presidents, because you know who would have been president a long time ago. <laughs> I am firmly convinced you cannot make one out of one that isn't one. It's just that simple. Had that been true, I would have made it before he did, or I would have died drunk. I believe that standing here today. As I said, I didn't like the taste of it, didn't like the smell of it, didn't like being drunk. So I took care of everybody. Took care of them when I was in university. In my freshman year in university, one of my classmates invited me to spend the Christmas holidays with her family in Dallas. On the train going down, she said, when we arrive, you're going to be going out with my brother's best friend. Go out with him, have a good time, just don't believe anything he says. <laughs> and I was a freshman and I was annoyed all and, and I thought I was wise and sophisticated and I didn't know anything about anything. And sophistication was not even in my vocabulary at the time, believe me it wasn't. And yet I could pretend and I could play. I could play any part you wanted me to play. I could play any role you wanted me to play. I could be anything you wanted me to be at any given time because I was a people pleaser. You taught me that. I know it. I didn't know it. And thank God today I can just be me and I don't have to pretend anymore to be anything but just me one day at a time, whatever me is. The child of God, I know that. I know that through you. We arrived in Dallas, got off of the train, and there was a little guy standing there. And we were introduced, and we went out that night. And uh, I went back to my friend's home, and the next morning she asked me what I thought. And I made a very profound statement that I think every one of us who have ever loved an alcoholic or love an alcoholic made at one time or another. And I said that morning, quote, he's different, unquote. Little did I know what the difference was. He was three years older than I, he still is. <laughs> he was a big man on campus at Southern Methodist University, he told me he was. He was all wise and all knowing. He told me all these things and I believed him. 
We went out every night the two weeks that I was in Dallas. We had a good time. And I went back to school, and I went back with the heart palpitations, and I went back knowing full well that this guy was hooked. Now, you have to remember that it was 1941 on my first trip to Dallas, and we had gone into World War II, not one, and we on campus were frightened. We gals were terrified, particularly I was. I have to speak for myself. Because many of the boys were going into the service, they were being called to active duty, and I had one thought uppermost in my mind, and that was, I'm going to be an old maid. By now, I'm 18. <laughs> Lots to worry about. I went back to school, didn't hear from him, wrote him a letter, didn't hear from him, got on with the business of meeting people mainly of the opposite sex, and having fun. By now, Boulder was a military city. Denver was a military city. We had servicemen coming out as a gazoo. And I want you to know we had 10 fellas to every gal. And it was grand. <laughs> it didn't make any difference what you look like. You could have one leg, be blind, be deaf, didn't make any difference. You had a date. And I fell in love every other week. Because, you see, he'd get shipped out, another one would get shipped in, and here we go again. And then an invitation arrived to go back to Dallas, and I couldn't wait. It was to be in a wedding. He was going to be in the same wedding. And I thought, uh-huh, this time it'll be different. And, uh, Maybe we'll get serious. And I took that same train, arrived at the same railroad station, the same little guy was standing there. And for two weeks, we participated in wedding festivities and going out and doing the same thing we had done on the previous visit. Now, the same thing that we had done on the previous visit and the next visit to Dallas, neither one of us even talked about until we got to you people many years later. There was a little drive-in hamburger place a few blocks from where my friend lived, and they served beer and ale in the car. And we would leave my friends home. We would drive to that drive-in. He introduced me to ale, and I sat in that car, and I drank that rotten stuff, pretended it was good, and lied to him, and he lied to me, and then he took me home. And that was what our dating consisted of. We never did go anywhere. And after the second trip of two-week visit, I went back to school with the heart palpitations, madly in love. I did not know what love was. Someone my age didn't know what love was all about. I was terribly naive, I've told you that. I wasn't sophisticated. My age group, my peers, did not know what the young people today know. And I'm sorry for that. I truly am. We knew so little about anything, and I think the young people today are fantastic. I love all of them. But we were sheltered, and we were prevented from knowing a lot of things. I just fantasized about what marriage was going to be like. And I fantasized about these six kids that I was going to have. 
and I fantasized what I wanted in a husband. And I had him in Dallas, only he didn't know it. You see, he had graduated from SMU, and he had gone on to professional school, and he was going to be allowed to finish his education. Consequently, I had it all figured out in my mind that by the time he finished his education, war would be over. We wouldn't have to worry about his going into the service. We could get on with the business of a family being successful. I would be the, quote, the perfect professional man's wife. I don't know what the devil that is. Don't ask me. But it was up here. I had it all figured out at that time. He didn't have those plans. Not at all. So after my second visit, when I wrote to him and didn't hear from him and wrote him again and didn't hear from him, I scratched him off my list and got on with the business of looking for somebody else. And it was easy to find a guy, but there was still that one back here. And another invitation arrived to go back to Dallas. And I couldn't wait to get there. It was for another wedding. I was a little distressed because by now I was thinking always a bridesmaid, never a bride. I got off the train and the same little guy was standing there. And at the end of this visit of two weeks, I went back with a fraternity pin. And I went back with the plans of being married. I know today that he had no plans in his life for a wife at that time, but I started the button pushing and the manipulating back then. I didn't know those things. I really didn't. I didn't know that's what I was doing. I convinced him he couldn't live without me, that I was everything he needed. And he believed me. I guess we're still together. But uh, we were going, this was in January, and we were not going to be married for two and a half years. We were both going to finish our education. In April, a ring arrived in the mail, June the 10th, 1943, 8 o'clock p.m., a formal wedding, a wedding that most gals dream about. Back then, at least we did, and now they're coming back to tradition again, and I'm so glad. And I was surrounded by loved ones, family and friends and, and people who cared and, and people who were so thrilled for me and loved me so much. We had only a three-day honeymoon because he had to be back in school and we left the wedding reception in my father's car to go up to the mountains. We made one stop. We drove about four blocks away from that reception and we stopped at the first liquor store that we could get to. Because, you see, this very, very wise gal up here, that sophisticated young man that we had just tied the knot, we were absolutely terrified. And the only way that our marriage could be consummated was with assistance, and where did it come from? It came from that liquid gold. And that night, I crawled into that bottle with that little guy, and I stayed there with him for the next 24 years. And that's why I say today, I know it is only by the grace of God I'm not an alcoholic. I know today that I was powerless over alcohol and that my life was unmanageable from day one of marriage. And I'll tell you how I know. When I wrote that inventory, I realized that every time he drank, I got angry. He didn't get drunk every time he drank. He wasn't an instant alcoholic or a 24-hour-a-day alcoholic at that time or a seven-day-a-week alcoholic or a drinker, problem drinker, whatever you want to call it. No way. But every time he drank, it did something to me. 
Now, I want you to know that every time I drank with him, I got drunk. And he never did get upset with me. He always took care of me when he was there. He always made sure I got home. He always made sure I got to bed. He always made sure that he held my head because, you see, drinking used to make me awfully sick if I drank too much. I didn't like that feeling. I did not like what it did to, with, and for me ever. It always made me drunk. I'm going to tell you that. You pour booze inside of anybody. I don't care whether they're three years old, 30 years old, or 90. They're going to get drunk. And that's not my opinion. That's proof. And I got drunk. And he always held the bed still. You know what I'm talking about when you lie down at night and the room's going this way and the bed's going this way. Oh, God, that's an awful feeling. And he would take care of me. But I forgot to remember that during the alcoholism years. I forgot to remember a lot of the good that went on. And many of us do because of the disease of alcoholism when it crosses into our home. I often compare my feelings to we do not know when the alcoholic crosses that invisible line into alcoholism. I don't know that the alcoholic knows. I don't know when I cross that invisible line from love to hate in our marriage. But somewhere along the line, I cross that line. And I grew to hate this man with every fiber of my being due to a disease called alcoholism that I not only knew nothing about, I had never heard of it. When Dave graduated from dental school, he was... He went into the Navy on active duty, <clears throat> pardon me, following a short residency in one of our local hospitals. And I was able to go with him, and we had a perfectly grand time. We had a ball. We had more money than we'd ever had. We partied, we played, we fought, we drank, and we made up. And that was our pattern. We were gone for 19 months. We went back to Dallas. He opened an office. I went to work for him. And now we really got on with the business of living. We built our first home. Our two sons were born. That's all we had, incidentally. The six never did come along. I was talking to one of the gals last night, and she, we were discussing this, and she said she always wanted a big family, and they had three. And I said, yeah, God knew exactly what he was doing with both of us, because if I'd had six, I don't know what would have happened. I really don't, because I had all I could do with two. And I'm so grateful for our two sons today and that I was allowed the privilege of motherhood and to have these two guys. But it took me a long time to be grateful for that because it was always, why couldn't I have more? It was always, why couldn't I have more of everything? I had what's known as the wants. During that period of five years, I went to work for David. We hired a housekeeper to live in to take care of the children so I could run and play and do the things that I wanted to do with my spouse at night, be involved in the community in the daytime, which I was, because once again, you see, I wanted your approval. And I would do anything to make you think that I was something special. And I became involved. I became totally immersed in club work. I don't regret it today because I know some of the things I did were good. Some of the things were done for so-called glory, to get my name in the paper, 
you know, big deal, big deal. Talk about misplaced ego one more time. During those five years, we drank, we partied, we played, we fought, and we made up. During those five years, we didn't like each other a lot of the time. During those five years, we made more money than any young couple even had a right to make back then. And we spent more than we made. We saved nothing. And all of a sudden, we woke up one morning and we were bankrupt in every area of our lives, financially, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. We had no marriage, none whatsoever. Now, we lived under the misconception that nobody knew. Isn't it amazing? We think nobody knows till we get here and then we find out there isn't anybody who doesn't know. We don't live in houses of concrete and steel. We live in houses with doors and windows and people here. The rotten, nasty, ugly things we say to one another. They know. They know. Our neighbors knew. Of course they did. The grocers knew because I don't know about anyone else. My checks were made of rubber and they bounced. And then I'd have to go with a great deal of humiliation and embarrassment and pick them up and lie and cheat and cover up. We get very good at that. I believe every one of us in this fellowship, A.A. Al-Anon or Al-Ateen, qualify for an Oscar. Turn us loose. Hollywood doesn't know what they missed. Because, you know, anybody can walk up to us who love an alcoholic or who be one and they say, how are you? And we say, grand. <laughs> how are things? Fine. You know, inside we're dying. But we don't dare let anybody know. We don't let anyone know what's going on inside. The facade of pretense that we put on our faces. I did it. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't. I lied to his family, to my family, to everybody concerned. Amazing thing. We drive around in automobiles with drunk bumps all over them. Now, maybe you didn't do that. We did. Because it gets to the point where the insurance gets so high, you get thrown into the pool after so many claims. And when you're drinking, what difference does it make anyway? So the people who service our automobiles know about it. They know we have a problem. I work right across the street from the Creston AA group and they open at 7 in the morning and they close at 10 at night and and I always know when we've got a new drunk upstairs across the street because I look out and there it is there's a car sitting over there and the back fender is wired on with bailing wire and the bumper is sort of cattywampus and maybe the door might even be gone off of one side or another and I think it won't be long until that car's all painted and fixed up and that guy or gal is going to be sober and I love it because you see that's what I did I became proud not false pride after coming into this program I became proud of my possessions the few that I have and wanting to take care of them. And this is what happens with all of us, I think, when we get here. Those five years in Dallas were a disaster, and Uncle Sam took care of it. 
because he sent David orders recalling him to active duty during the Korean situation. Now, we were absolutely delighted. The kids and I were going to stay behind and he was going to serve the few short months that were necessary and he'd be back. And maybe, just maybe, we could put our marriage on a more stable foundation. And that was just fine with me. Kids and I stayed behind. He took off for California. And he was gone two weeks and he called and he said, uh, how soon can you sell the house and join me? Well, two weeks is a long time without your playmate. And I couldn't wait. Now here are two people who couldn't live under the same roof without saying the most despicable things in the world to each other. And I couldn't wait to get out there. Independent dependence. I needed him and he needed me. The house went on the market, the furniture and the storage and the kids and I were on our way. The housekeeper stayed behind. We couldn't afford her on Navy pay. For the first time, I had full charge of these little guys, and I was to learn what it was like to be a mother. I would get them up in the morning and, and give them their breakfast and take them to the beach and do the things that normies do. And I loved it. Didn't really understand much about motherhood. It was like a little girl playing with her dolls. And for a long time after coming into this program, that was the one area in my life that I could not forgive myself for. Please understand, I did not ever mistreat my children physically. It was the emotional abuse where I harmed them. And I will give you two perfect examples, and I give them for a reason. Because many years later, I had the great privilege of being an Alateen sponsor for six years. And I listened to these young people spill their guts and tell the truth in those Alateen meetings week in and week out. And I knew through them that they love and understood the alcoholic because when you pour alcohol inside of the alcoholic, they're anesthetized. They're not responsible. But what's wrong with mother or dad when we're stark, raving, sober? What's wrong with us? What was wrong with me? Stark, raving, sober. Our older son was four years old, and he developed a nervous tick. And I had him to every specialist that I could get him to, and there was nothing physically wrong with him. He was living in a home with alcoholism. Our younger son was two and a half. He didn't speak. He didn't say one word. He didn't say a word until he was four years old. I had him to all the therapists that I could take him to. And there was nothing physically wrong with his child. And it absolutely boggles my mind. Thank God it is not like this here. When I saw Alateen on the program, it gave me goosebumps. When I saw all of the activities of Alateen, because you go a lot of places where Alateen is not accepted, where they don't even know what it is. I didn't know what it is, what it was for four years after I got to you. I had no idea. I have heard parent after parent say to me, my children don't need Alateen. I was sober before they were born. My children don't need Alateen. They never saw me drink. Maybe they didn't. I don't know about your program, 
Mine tells me, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. My program tells me that the man that I live with is one drink away from a drunk. And maybe your child hasn't ever seen you take a drink, and God forbid that he or she ever does without this program. You know, they lie about their meetings. They say they're going to the club, the country club. It's a heck of a thing to do to a child, and it does happen. Don't deny your kids the same gift that you and I have been given, a gift of a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. It was many years before I found this house. Kids and I joined David in California. We hired a babysitter every night so we could run and play and do the things that we wanted to do. In the daytime, I played the role of mama, just the way it was, and it was a role-playing deal. And at night, we'd drink, we'd party, we'd play, we'd fight, and we'd make up. And you know, it's always so darn much fun making up that you forget about all the rotten, nasty, ugly things you say to one another. And then he was shipped to Hawaii on temporary duty. And he told me not to worry about a thing. That he sent his paycheck home twice a month and it didn't occur to me to doubt him until it didn't arrive. And I didn't understand it. And I called him in Hawaii. And he didn't understand it either because he'd mailed it yesterday. And I waited a reasonable length of time and I called him back and he couldn't understand it because he'd mailed it yesterday. And I waited a reasonable length of time and I went to the base legal officer not to get a divorce. I went to the base legal officer to humiliate and embarrass this man, and this is exactly what I did. He was threatened with a court-martial. As an officer and a gentleman, he was forced to sign over an allotment. That was humiliating. In the years to come, I was to strip this man of every bit of dignity that he ever had. I'm not proud of that. It's just the way I was. I did it verbally. I learned language I don't know where I learned it from. The lowest gutter people don't use the language that I used, but I used it. I got to you people and I cleaned it up, thank God. Thank God. He had to sign over an allotment and my money problems were over. And I was just waiting for him to come back from temporary duty. And then I'd tell him, you know what? And the kids and I would leave. Now, we were living in what was then a small town of San Clemente, California. It's a city today. I think we had 1,500 people back then. And uh, it was delightful and it was wonderful. And I could have left any hour of any day and gone to Denver to my family, to Dallas, to his. But I wanted to wait to confront him and tell him exactly how I felt. And my phone rang about 3 o'clock or 3.30 one morning, and it was shipped ashore. And he wanted the children and me to meet him in San Diego. I couldn't wait to get the kids up, get them dressed, get in the car, drive down that coast to San Diego, and watch Daddy walk off that ship. And God, he looked good in his uniform. All that resentment, all that anger, all of that hurt right out into the Pacific, I thought. It didn't. I just buried it a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And I didn't mention leaving him. I didn't mention anything because, you see, my playmate was back. And we got on with the business of doing the same things we'd been doing. 
partying, drinking, playing, fighting, and making up. And then the entire division was shipped to the Far East. It was at this time that the children and I did move to Denver to be close to my family. We didn't expect him to be gone long, and he didn't either. It didn't turn out that way. It was three years of total desertion. I would love to stand up here today and tell you I grew halo and I grew wings. I didn't. I grew a tremendous amount of resentment, a tremendous amount of hatred, a tremendous amount of anger. And then I thought, by God, I'll show him. I'll show him. I'll go out and I'll find somebody. Kind of like your speaker last night. She was a bar drinker. Well, so was I. Now, I was afraid to go to the public bars. But I had access to the officers' clubs in Denver, and I made darn good use of them. Lowry Air Force became my favorite. I was recently told that they've completely restructured the club, and I'm so sorry, because I would love to have gone back to see if it really is as I remember it. Probably not. But as I remember, when you walked into the bar, there were four bar stools right here and then a long bar right here. And I always managed to get one of the stools at the short end of the bar. One reason, one reason only, because it gave me a chance to look you fellas over. Every one of you fellas knew what I was there for. Some of you gals do too, because you've tried it. Admit it or not. And it wouldn't be too long. There would be a drink in front of me. And then very shortly, there'd be somebody standing beside me, lighting my cigarette. And we'd be gazing fondly into one another's eyes, and it was instant love. You know, I got to you people many years later, and I found out, we don't fall in love, we come in heat. I didn't know that. I met a guy, of course I did. It doesn't take long. And he loved me, and I loved him, and everything was going to be beautiful, and we were going to go right off into the sunset. He was just going to send me to Mexico for an illegal divorce because I couldn't get one in the States. And uh, I darn near took him up on it. I went to our family physician who'd known me since age five and told him what I planned to do, and he loved me very much. And he said, I understand, honey, and he said, I don't blame you. But he said, before you make this decision, go home and get a piece of paper and put down David on one side and this young man on the other and write down everything you like and dislike about each of them and then make your decision. And you know what I had? I had one in Denver and I had one in the Far East. I didn't know what they were, but they were exactly alike. I introduced him to a former classmate of mine. They ran off and married ten days later. <laughs> didn't take me long to find another. This one was a full colonel. And where do you go from colonel? You become general. There came the fantasy. I could see us already living on the base in general's quarters, the servants, you know, waiting on us. Me, the hostess, with the Moses. I was so carried away with the fantasy that I failed to hear one thing this young man said to me. He had recently been shipped back from Korea due to a drinking problem. I realized, after going with him for some time, that his behavior was unacceptable. I didn't know that terminology back then. I introduced him to another friend. She was wise enough not to marry him. I have already told you about the size of my family in Denver. My family settled in Denver in the mid-1800s. And I could not do. And I didn't like the way I was living. 
couldn't get a divorce because he was out of the country and I was told by our attorney in Dallas, which was legal residence, that until he returned I could do nothing. And I thought, sooner or later the son of a gun has got to come back. And when he does, I'll terminate this and then I will do the right things for the right reasons. You know, I had trouble with step two when I got to this program. Never one time did I ever take off my wedding ring when I was out running and playing. You don't go to church to find a guy when you're married. It's not socially acceptable. That was one of the reasons for the bar drinking. It is not socially acceptable to say, Hi, I'm Grayson and, and I'm married but I'm looking for somebody. It's just not acceptable. So I thought, when he gets back and when I terminate this, then, then the right one will come along. And it wasn't very long after. The phone rang, and it was from San Francisco, and you know who, and I hung up. <laughs> and he called back, and I hung up a second time, and the third time I listened. And all he wanted me to do was fly out there and see if we couldn't put it back together, and I said, there's no way. And there wasn't until the next day. And I was on, my, on a plane on my way to San Francisco. Now, I went with all intent of handing the divorce papers that had been drawn up to him, getting on a return flight to Denver, and getting on with the business of living. I got off the plane, and he was in uniform, and he looked good. I am still a sucker for uniforms. We went to the closest bar. Of course we did. We started drinking, we started talking. And four days later, I went back to Denver to wait for Daddy to be released from active duty to start all over. <coughs> you see, not one time did I remember that back in 1950 that I'd heard the word alcoholic or alcoholism. Not one time did I ever identify what was wrong with this man. I always felt, like so many of us, that it was going to be better tomorrow. I did not know that he doesn't ever get better, that alcoholism is progressive, that it only gets worse. And I wasn't to find that out. Dave picked us up in Denver. We went back to Dallas, opened an office, stayed a short time, went out toward the Texas Panhandle, stayed less than a year, moved further into the Texas Panhandle. We stayed eight years. During that time, I did everything that any of us have done became involved in the community, of course I did. That was part of me. That was part of my running away from me, only I didn't know it. I didn't have to face me when I was involved with all of the activities of the community. I didn't have to face the fact that we had a sick home. I didn't have to face any of those things. Until one day he called and he said, how about moving back to Dallas? I said, when do we leave? Because you see, one more time, total bankruptcy in our lives. Every area, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, maritally, financially. Nothing going for us, except the people in the community loved us and accepted us just the way they were, uh, that we were. They didn't ask us to leave, but we had run out. We had run out and we knew it. Two weeks later, we were back in Dallas. We told the people in that small town that we left because his mother and dad needed us in Dallas. They didn't. Dad had retired and he and Grandma were doing all the things they'd ever planned on retirement. They didn't need a drunk son, a confused daughter-in-law, and two very mixed up grandsons. They got us. 
Today I thank the God of my understanding that allowed them to live long enough to know a sober son, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, to know a family, to see a family trying to put their lives back together one day at a time through this fellowship. They're a God that allowed my family the same privilege my parents. I have so much to be thankful for. But we had three more years of drinking. Those three years, I lied, I cheated, I stole. I planned his murder, I planned my suicide. Now, I talked about the murder a lot. Then I quit talking about it because I didn't want to be an accessory too. In July, David and I were in a little town of Alvin, Texas, down out of Houston. And a young man walked up to me and he said, you didn't tell about the perfect murder. And he said, you're the reason I'm sober. And I said, honey, I don't 12-step drunks. He said, you 12-step me. Several years prior to that, I had spoken at a little anniversary group in Nederland, Texas. And I talked about the murder. The perfect murder was he was going to come home. He was going to pass out. I was going to take the cleaning bag off the cleaning. I was going to put it over him, suffocate him, put it back over the cleaning, go to bed, wake up in the morning, call the police, the necessary authorities, and the death would be accidental and I would be free. Now, I didn't ever do this, you understand. But I think it's a heck of an idea. This young man that came up to me in July said his wife was at that meeting that I talked and brought the tape home and he was drunk in bed and she turned the recorder on and when he came to that's what he heard and he said he hadn't had a drink since so I'm talking about it because if you get some, somebody sober by God any way you can get them here and get them I'm a firm believer I planned my own suicide. I was going to overdose on pills. And I knew exactly how many to take, but it wouldn't be fatal because I'd worked in the office with him. I stole the pills from his office, not pills that he used because he was not a pill head. But these were pharmaceutical samples. And uh, brought them home. Had my little, own little private stash. One night sent the kids to grandma's. Overdosed. You know, got myself all gutsied up in a pretty gown so he'd come home and really feel badly. <laughs> I came to 24 hours later with the only hangover I've ever had in my life, and he had not been home. <laughs> Didn't try that again. Then I read about turning on the gas and you just go to sleep. And whatever made me think that I could even stand it, I don't know, because I can't stand it when a pilot light goes out. But I was going to turn the gas on, sent the kids to grandma's again. Got myself all gussied up for bed. And we lived in an all-electric home. <laughs> and there was nothing wrong with me when I got to you people. Nothing. <laughs> yes, I lied. I cheated. I covered up. But you know, and I know, you cannot hide a drunk. Have you ever tried? There's no way. We kid only ourselves. I know today that I love the alcoholic. Not just the one I'm married to. I love alcoholics. And I know today, without a shadow of a doubt, that if I were left alone, I'd go hunt another drunk. It is that simple. I can promise you one thing. At my age, 
it'd be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> you get a little old for going into training sometimes. <laughs> By this time, I was self-supporting through my own contributions. I could have left at any time. I chose not to. I wanted him out. And did you ever try to get rid of one? The love-hate syndrome. I've already told you how I felt. I wanted him the hell out of my life. And I couldn't get him out. I didn't give a damn anymore whether he lived or died. That's how where I had to get to. And it was about six months prior to his calling for help. And I sat down in the den one night, and I was just as quiet and calm as I could be, and I told him this is how I felt. And until I got to you people, I did not know that that was the night that I let go and I let God take that alcoholic. I didn't know until I got to you people that that was the night that I surrendered. I did know that that was the first night that I had slept in months, a night through. That I did not go to bed saying my prayers, Dear God, don't let him come home tonight. And then be up looking out the window to see if he was driving up. I didn't pray, dear God, let him be killed. Just don't let him kill anybody else. And then I didn't say, oh, dear God, don't let him die because we can't afford a funeral. <laughs> or, dear God, who would I get for pallbearers? I didn't do that anymore. And then my phone rang one day in the office, and you know who, and he said he was going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, be my guest, and I hung up because I told you I didn't care. And he came home that night and he stayed. And there was no, no communication. And the next day he called me back in my office and told me the same thing. And he got the same response. And that evening he came in and he changed clothes. And he walked out. <clears throat> Pardon me. And our older son by now was a freshman in the University of Texas. And our younger son was finishing his junior year in high school. And he said, Mom, do you think Dad really means it? And I said, we won't know, son, until Dad comes home. And that was April 2167, and he's been coming home ever since. There was not instant communication, because, you see, those six months that I had let go, I gave him the silent treatment. And if you think words are destructive, try the silent treatment. They are absolutely, the silent treatment is devastating. Excuse me. If I had anything to say to him, I left him a note. And if there was a response, he left one for me. He came home from that meeting and nothing. I really didn't care. Wouldn't been interested. Till the following Friday night, he invited me to go to an open meeting with him, and I said, okay. You see, something had happened. You had done something that the kids and I had been trying to do for I don't know how long. And I wanted to find out what it was you'd done. Our program is one of attraction rather than promotion. He had been taking a shower every single day. He'd been changing his clothes from the inside out. You had cleaned him up. So once again, our program is one of attraction rather than promotion. Any way you can get him here, get him. I got to that first AA meeting. Couldn't tell you one single thing about it except the feeling in that room. It was fantastic. The laughter. I hadn't laughed in so long. 
because you see I'd lost all my feelings I hadn't cried and I swore I would never shed another tear as long as I lived don't ever say never I didn't cry that night of course I didn't I was overwhelmed and I was awed by the entire situation on Monday night he asked me if I'd like to go to a Nyanan meeting I said what's that he said I haven't the vaguest idea but I think it's for you <laughs> and I attended my first Al-Anon meeting and I don't want to ever forget it and I'm going to share it with you because every one of us in this room has a responsibility to pass it on and I walked into a room that night of the most pri- pious broads I've ever met in my life and they were so good I wanted to throw up <laughs> And they sat there and they knitted and they needle-pointed. I didn't do either one. I needle-point today, but you can bet your biffy I don't do it in meetings. They talked about making jelly. I've already told you how old I am and I haven't ever made jelly. I'm not going to start now. (laughs) They talked about how good they were to those drunks and how they cleaned them up and put them to bed and fed them. I wanted mine to starve to death. I didn't care if he died in the gutter. There was no identification. I thank God every day that I live for the woman alcoholic because she's the reason I'm still here. The woman drunk literally left, loved me into this fellowship until I could become a part of instead of a part from. The women drunks in that group knew, and not in the Al-Anon group, in the AA group, how I was hurting how I needed to be needed, how I needed somebody. I don't ever want to forget that. My first sponsor is a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I will never be able to repay Chris, ever, for what she did for me. Because I hadn't been in the program two weeks when she handed me this book. And if any of you don't know what it is, it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. We seem to get away from literature today, conference approved or not. And the big book is not Al-Anon conference approved. It boggles my mind. This is my own feelings I'm talking about. I don't know where your program came from, kids. I know where mine came from. It came as a direct result of of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am recovering one day at a time through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous not the 12 steps of Al-Anon. There are two chapters in the big book for me that are to the wives of the family afterwards. Chris said you crawl into this book and you read the first 164 pages to find out who you're living with. Then you read Al-Anon literature to find out how to live with him. And you know I'm still doing it 18 and a half years later. I love the big book. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love Al-Anon and I love Alateen. I hated that group and I didn't know I could go anyplace else. And it took me four years and I had to go all the way to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, Canada to hear a man from Raleigh, North Carolina say, if you don't think your group's the best one, go get yourself another one. How simple. Keep it simple. I heard him. You can't hear till you hear and you can't see till you see. And when I went back to Dallas, I walked into the Preston group the following Monday night and I found a home. And I found two Al-Anon sponsors. And I have three sponsors today and I use all of them. My AA and my two Al-Anon. 
I found a group of people who told me the truth. They told me you don't graduate. They suggested strongly that I start over on step one. And I did what they said, and I've been doing it ever since. Every morning before I hit the floor, the first three steps are my conscious contact and my contract with the God of my understanding, lest I forget from whence I come. It was at the Preston Group that I was allowed the privilege of becoming reality and sponsor, and I remained such for six years, and I loved every minute of it. You see, children were not allowed in the group that I came from, let alone talked about, and so that was the reason I didn't know about reality. I didn't want to be a member of Al-Anon. I wanted to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because that's where the laughter was and that's where the love and that's where the warmth was. And that's where you could cry freely. I'm not talking about the poor me crying that we have in Al-Anon and the why me boo-hoo crying that we have in Al-Anon. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the tears of joy. It says happy, joyous, and free, and I think that's what it's all about. But I didn't belong. Chris said, pick up the big book and look at chapter four. I told you, I drank. I drank and I drank and I drank, but I couldn't become one. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous said, if you honestly want to and cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount that you take, you're probably alcoholic. I wasn't. I'm not. So I didn't belong. Today I love Al-Anon. Today I belong in Al-Anon. I am a part of Al-Anon. I am a member in good standing of Al-Anon. I attend meetings regularly. I sponsor people. I work the 12 steps. And I also study the 12 traditions and work them in my personal life as well as on the group level. I have been in service ever since the beginning. GRDR alternate delegate. Back to GRDR. Physically, I'm unable to do that today. So my service is on the group level and on sponsorship. And that's fine. It's very, very fulfilling to me. And I love every bit of it. Those two little guys that were brought up in one of the sickest homes that any two kids could ever come up in are certain grown men today and two of the finest young men that I know. Our older son is a practicing attorney in Washington, D.C., he married, uh, it'll be eight years, come December, a little girl in Santiago, Chile. I was able to go to the wedding through the courtesy of my brother, and we got the daughter we always wanted. She is absolutely unbelievable, and I remind our son every opportunity that he's the luckiest guy walking the face of the earth. She is loving and tender and gentle and kind and just unbelievably thoughtful. And two years ago, November the 8th, they gave us our first granddaughter. Now, we're old enough to be great-grandparents, and we have our first grandbaby. And let me tell you, there isn't anybody in this room that's got one like Abigail. <laughs> she only speaks Spanish, and if you don't think that's a communication problem. <laughs> but she understands her grandma. When I go to visit... I bought her a rocking horse several months ago, so she started calling me Grandma Caballo, and that's horse. I wouldn't that. <laughs> David and I were with him last month, and, and we bought her a baby doll, so now I'm uh, Mama Grace for the baby doll. So that's a little bit better than horse, I guess. 
Our younger son is still single. And he lives in Hong Kong, and he's very, very successful in his position of management with the corporation that he's with. And uh, he's an unbelievable guy. He's just unreal. He's in the middle of a meaningful relationship today. And uh, I don't approve, but he doesn't ask for my approval. <laughs> it's not the relationship, it's just her. Uh, and she may be my daughter-in-law, and I will love and accept the things I cannot change. <laughs> and it'll be okay if it makes him happy. It's okay. I cried out, Elaine said it last night from the podium, why me? Through the years of the drinking, particularly the later years of the drinking, why me, God, why me? With teeth gritted in anger and resentment and hurt and fear. Because I couldn't understand and I didn't understand. I didn't have a disease called alcoholism, but I was suffering from the effects of. I know that today. My sons were suffering from the effects of. And today, it's a different connotation. It's why me, God? How come? I'm the lucky one. And I mean that from the bottom of my toes to the top of my head. To be a part of a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, and al To be allowed the privilege of spending a weekend with all of you and having you here loving me in spite of me how do you say thank you? Just by trying one day at a time to carry the message to the best of my ability and not to forget from whence I came and to thank the God of my understanding for you and to thank you for giving me that God.